You're listening to The Gospel, Race, and Justice, a sermon series at Sojourn Church Midtown. Join us as we have a conversation about ethnicity, reconciliation, and the church. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wilderness of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. Well, what a wonderful worship set we had this morning, and we praise God for our worship team uh, for helping us to lift up the name of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. And if you are a first-time guest today, I just want to say welcome. My name is Jamal Williams. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn. We are so glad that you are here. Um, And if you are a member here at Sojourn, what's up? What's cracking? How y'all doing? Amen. I'm glad y'all are here as well. Uh, Today, we are starting a new series called The Gospel, Race, and Justice, and it's going to last six weeks and go into September the 13th. But as we start this series, I just want to ask a question, ask you to do something a little strange. I want you to close your eyes. No one looking around, if you would, and just raise your hand um, if this question uh, pertains to you. If you have heard a sermon series at your church 
in the last five years on race, the gospel, and justice? Just raise your hand. A full series. You can put your hands down. All right. Well, there's very few hands that have went up. And even though we've exposited the Bible here at Sojourn Midtown and we've talked about race, justice, and the gospel a lot, we haven't done a full series. And so we're doing that for the first time uh, today. And I'm uh, confident that the Lord is going to meet us where we are. I also feel like things have kind of come full circle. This January will be five years since I joined uh, Sojourn Midtown. Five years ago, we were 99.5% maybe uh, white, and we've since grown in diversity. But also uh, for my installation service, Dr. Curtis Woods, who is associate director of the KBC, delivered that message and challenged us as we were going into the season of multiculturalism and just being a church like heaven. And today he's here and I just want to acknowledge him and his presence. Appreciate you, brother. Hey, let's pray and let's dive in and see what the Lord has for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would search us. I pray that you would break us. I pray that you would unite us. And I pray that you would send us. Lord, my strength, our strength indeed is small. So speak. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we do pray. And the church said... Well, I know that as I announced the series, uh, that I imagine there was mixed feelings in the room. Some people are excited because this is a topic they love and you're used to the subject for various reasons. Other people are, as Pastor Josh said, a little nervous, perhaps not looking forward to the series because you see this conversation as something that is overemphasized or even as a politicized agenda. Or perhaps you are afraid to uh, get back into your community groups and share uh, your perspective, which you assume will be different from mine or the other pastors. And I just want you to know wherever you are today, I get it. Um, while I was preparing this sermon to other pastors, there were times in which uh, we may have experienced some, some nervousness or feeling like we uh, had to live up to something. But the gospel relieves us of that pressure and reminds us that we have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And as long as we are thinking about this subject with gospel centrality and biblical faithfulness, I promise we will be all right. And that's exactly what we plan to do is to look at what the Bible has to say about this issue. If the church cannot talk about issues that are big in our culture, where else are we going to go to talk about it? I mean, if the church cannot talk about race, sexuality, abortion, in incarnation, the poor, wealth, marriage, power, where else are we going to learn to apply biblical wisdom to the conversation? But my prayer for each of you is that you will listen to this series, uh, not with political ears, but with the ears first and foremost of a citizen of heaven, as one who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ and given a new perspective on life and who has been given a, a worldview uh, that is, is biblical in which we can see. And the one principle I hope that you will hold on to throughout this series is the principle of re reflecting rather than reacting. I want to invite you to reflect before reacting. If you disagree with something, an example or illustration, reflect on what was communicated and try to see it 
from what the pastor who presented uh, it to you uh, sees it before just trenching down into the way that you've always seen it. Also, if you learn something new and you agree with what was shared, I want to invite you to sit on it for a little while before you go to set your grandparents straight. <laughs> Hilma Thillick in his classic, A Little Exercise for Young Theologians, spoke figuratively when he said this, the study of theology often produces overgrown youths whose internal organs have not correspondingly developed. There's actually something like theological puberty. He encourages people who are discovering a controversial matter for the first time to sit on it for a year before trying to persuade others. And perhaps that's what you should do. Unless I want to acknowledge that race and racism is a universal problem. It's not simply an American problem. You can throw a dart at a map and you can see that uh, each continent has been impacted by it in some way. You throw a dart at Africa, Asia, Europe, Australia, etc., and you can find marginalization, disenfranchisement. You can find uh, tribal cleansing, caste systems, and other sins, which may not be the same, but are related to racism. And so we are going to address this issue holistically, but I want you to understand we are also going to narrow in on the black-white divide and other ethnic divisions in our context for two reasons. The first is because of our neighborhood and historical realities. Shelby Park, the neighborhood in which this church resides, is 49% black, 44% white, 0.5% Hispanic, and 6% biracial. Also, there is historical realities that play into all of this. And if we're going to be sensitive to our African-American brothers and sisters, we need to learn to apply the word of God to America's most visible divide. If our community was filled with mostly Native Americans, then we should address this series on race to particularly deal with their pain. But second, we stand at a, a, a culturally uh, hostile moment. Louisville is on the national news with the unnecessary death of Breonna Taylor, along with other cases throughout the United States, such as George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. I believe that it would be spiritual malpractice on my part as well as your pastor's part if we did not acknowledge what was going on in this city. I imagine that Jesus discipled Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, through their views, through their politics, so that they could be healed to be reconcilers with others. And so as we move forward, today I want to lay the groundwork for this series, and I want to do so by giving you four words to organize this, ser this sermon around. The first word is the word beauty. The word beauty. And here I want to show that God created humanity very good and that all of us are created in his image. Therefore, we inherently have dignity and worth. Have you ever just paused to think about how beautiful humanity is? Or does it, your mind tends to just drift towards brokenness? Humans are beautiful creatures, creatures that come from different shades, shapes, abilities, and ways. And the Bible affirms the beauty and, and detail by which each individual was created. And I hope that you can conclude like David in Psalm 139, who wrote, for you created my inward parts. 
speaking to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because you have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. And essentially, David is able to say this uh, because the Bible affirms this in the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds, the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So in Genesis 1, we have this carefully written creation narrative. And the main point of the narrative is this. With his powerful word, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. The crown of God's creation is man, Adam and Eve. Mankind is described as being created in the image and likeness of God. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on exactly what does this mean. And many times the focus is on uh, mankind's relational capacity. But one theologian explains it this way. It was widely believed that God's spirit lived in any statue or image of that God. And this is speaking of ancient Near East uh, religion with the result that the image could function as a kind of representative or substitute for the God wherever it was placed. It was also customary in ancient Near East to think of a king as a representative of God. Obviously, the king ruled and the God was the ultimate ruler. So the king must be ruling on the God's behalf. And so here we are learning that we are God's image, not a statue or a king, according to the Bible. So then the image of God reference is pointing to the fact that mankind was vice regents ruling over God's creation. Humans were created to be servants and sons of God. But the second point that I want to make about this verse is to see that ethnicity is created before the fall, while race is created after the fall. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's important that we see that God created ethnicity and he celebrates it. And a basic understanding of ethnicity is this. It's one's culture, values, customs, and ideas, and it does not relate to the color of one's skin. One's culture, culture, values, customs, and ideas, and it does not relate to the colors of one's skin. For example, black people can be from different ethnicities. Black Latino, African American, Jamaican, Haitian, they are all black, but they are from different ethnicities. And this was understood more clearly in the past before we had the broad categories of black and white. Americans understood themselves as Irish, German, Italian, or maybe even Israeli. Now, it's definitely more complex than this, but this is it at its most basic level. See, the Bible only talks about the human race. So God created mankind as one race that should fill the world, thereby creating different ethnicities. And his creation was at peace and everything was very good 
Somebody say it was all good. The second word is the word brokenness. The word brokenness. Fast forward to Genesis chapter three after God creates Adam from the dust of the earth and then puts him to sleep to create Eve from his rib. We have what is commonly referred to as the fall. In Genesis chapter three, one through five, we have a riveting and sad account. Adam's wife is tempted by Satan. In Genesis chapter two, verse 16, God told Adam that he was free to eat from any tree of the garden, but not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The scripture says, for God says on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so it's in Genesis chapter three, verse one through six, that we see Satan tempting Eve by undermining what God said and ensuring her that she will not die if the fruit is eaten, but rather that she will be like God. Eve eats the fruit and the world is never the same. We have tornadoes, we have hurricanes, and we have hostility between people. In Genesis chapter one, verse 24, Adam writes the first poem in all of scripture. He looks at Eve, this woman, and he says, girl, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But we see after the fall that this poem writing Adam is now an accusatory Adam who is pointing the finger at his wife and placing the blame on her. In fact, we read verses 11 through 6, the humanity's first round of the blame game. Adam says of Eve to God, it's the woman that you gave me. Eve said, no, it's the serpent. He deceived me. In verse 15, God curses Adam and we read God's word to the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the point is this, that because of sin, humanity experienced deep brokenness. Hostility was entered into the garden. People, Adam and Eve, now allow their differences to divide. And I think hostility is a good way to describe what humans often experience with each other. If only this group of people would think like this, then everything would be perfect. I mean, Paul sums up Adam and Eve's disobedience in this way. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because, somebody say, all have sinned. Sin quickly brings all of mankind into a downward spiral. And this is a story of Genesis. Genesis chapter four, we see Cain kills Abel, the first murder of the scripture. Genesis chapter six, we see God lamenting over creating man because they had become so evil. I mean, there's like one good chapter in the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, maybe Genesis chapter 10, the genealogy of man or something like that, right? And then by Genesis chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel, where mankind, rather than going and filling the earth, as God has said, they come together from, uh, uh, from the east region and they build a tower for their own glory. By the end of the book of Genesis, even though we've been introduced to these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see a world power, Egypt, is now in control 
And what is Egypt doing? What is Pharaoh doing? They are enslaving the image bearers of God, those who were called to be vice regents, to be sons and servants, now are being treated as less than human. Sin is hostility towards God and it leads towards hostility with mankind. What started off as sin, the sin of one or the sin of two, by the end of Genesis, we see is the sin of, of a nation. And here's my point. Whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, on this side of the fall, people who possess endemic sin nature create structures that marginalize and mistreat others. Remember, under the word beauty, we define and discuss ethnicity. Now, since we are under the word brokenness, it's important for us to talk about the word race. What is race? According to Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson and uh, Christian Smith the, and, and Bloodlines by John Piper, we can get this definition. Race is a Western social construct that developed in the 16th and 17th centuries to distinguish groups of people on the basis of selective physical characteristics such as skin color, facial features, and hair type. In our culture, we use the word race and ethnicity in the same way, but that's not historically accurate. Historically, race was a word that emphasized a racial hierarchy between blacks and whites. Race was and is biological fiction, but a social fact, socially constructed to emphasize white superiority and African inferiority. In fact, the idea of race was constructed by a diverse group of European travelers, mostly Protestants, in order to homogenize them into one group known as whites and to distinguish them from enslaved Africans, whom they did not think had souls and were therefore heathen. This construct of race historically came into existence in order to emphasize that those who classified as white were biologically superior to those who were African. Race historically is connected to one's perceived biological superiority and inferiority. And this just wasn't in America. Again, this was seen globally. Of course, race is based on a lie. For there's only the human race biologically. There's no black gene or white gene. Also, there is no scientific evidence that supports white superiority and black inferiority. But race and racial hierarchy are based on a lie, namely racism. Those at the top of the racial uh, hierarchy determined the economic, political, social, and even theological destinies of those who are at the bottom. And we have seen here in America how this has played out in our country with the transatlantic slave trade, with chattel slavery, with convict leasing, with reconstruction, with Jim Crow laws, with redlining, which may be a, a newer term to some of you, which uh, relates to the discriminatory practice uh, by which banks refuse or limit loans, mortgages, insurance within mostly inner city neighborhoods. Racism, therefore, listen to this, theologically exists because of sin. 
And historically, it's connected to power. Those in power, namely those who created the idea of race and racial hierarchy, use their racial power to dehumanize and to marginalize Native people, Black people, and so-called inferior races in every area of life. Again, racism is a global issue, issue and effects of years of racism have a global impact on the people of color. One of the ways that it shows up globally is through something that's similar called colorism. Globally, because of a colonization, there is an acceptance in general of lighter skinned people more than darker complexions in most instances, which for the life of me, I, I just can't understand and lament because beauty comes in all shades. And while I don't condone to Tupac's uh, overall message and his song, uh, Keep your head up. Uh, he was trying to instill uh, black pride in, in the lives of a darker complexion women. And he has a, a line that says, some say the darker the berry, the sweeter the juice. I say the darker the berry, the deeper the roots. He was going after colorism. My heart breaks as I read about global colorism and the popularity of skin lightening creams. This is just one way that we see brokenness and fallenness in the discussion. In 2011, the World Health Organization estimated that as many as 77% of women in one African country used lightning products on a regular basis, even though it's extremely toxic. Even the men in that country used it to enhance their attractiveness. Similar themes of oppression preference for lighter skin exist in India as well, which can probably be tied back to the effects of white British colonialism. The same is true in uh, different places in the uh, Caribbean and, and all over the world. And this type of thinking is just the tip of one's ice of the iceberg of humanity's brokenness. And we've seen this in America with certain celebrities who were born one way. And by the uh, end of their life, they're completely different color. Now, don't get me wrong. Hear me when I say this. Within American Christianity, racism was ingrained in the fabric of white churches, and the church has missed the opportunity to address it. In fact, the fundamental reason we have the black church in America is because of the racism in white churches. Black Christians resisted racism in white churches and were forced to start their own churches. If you want to learn more, Google the name Richard Allen or Absalon Jones. Again, I'm not sharing this to guilt anyone, but hopefully to teach, as I've learned over and over, how many people don't know this country's and the church's history. I love my country. There is a lot of beauty in the American church. But healing comes when we see the truth, when we confront it. And when we repent of what we are called to repent of, when we don't see the truth and we don't confront our past, we remain apathetic rather than empathetic. And we begin to look down on people, not knowing how demonic and twisted things were and in some cases still are. Here's one example of the many of racism in the American church 
And the reason I share this again is because as I talk to uh, many Christians, uh, white and others, we, we just have not been taught these things. George Whitfield, as reported in the book, The Color of Compromise, was a, celebra- a celebrated uh, hero within American evangelicalism, and he was a revivalist preacher. And I believe that there will be many people in heaven because of him, and I hope to see him there. But Whitfield supported slavery and went from moderately doing so to outright support and championing it. And it's important to note that chattel slavery and the Roman Greco slavery in the Bible are quite different and that God doesn't support or champion either one. But chattel slavery was brutal and unbiblical as it was regularly accompanied by kidnapping, rape, beating and little to mostly no wages. Now, part of the reason Whitfield supported slavery, like most Protestants, was for personal financial gain. See, Whitfield started an orphanage in Savannah, uh, Georgia, called Bethsaida, or House of Mercy. The orphanage was failing financially due to mismanagement. So Whitfield looked to slavery to secure the orphanage welfare by turning to wealthy friends that he had gained during his revivals in South Carolina for support. He bought a 640-acre plantation and planned to use the profit from the crops produced there to support the work of the orphanage. Whitfield was virtually guaranteed a profit from his plantation activities because he didn't plan on paying his laborers. As he wrote, one Negro has been given to me, some more I plan to purchase this week. Whitfield began petitioning the political leaders of Georgia, which had been founded as free territory, to allow slavery, claiming economic ruin without it. At the end of his revivals and preaching the word, he would then preach a second sermon, begging the hearers to make sure that slavery persisted there and was accepted. He was quoted as saying, Georgia can never be a flourishing province unless Negroes are employed as slaves. Behind Whitfield's concern was not just financial gain, but fear, as historian Stephen J. Stein writes. The focus upon contrast and change in his ideas, which has dominated discussions to date, obscures a more significant feature of his thought, namely his deep-seated fear of the Blacks. And the reason I share this is because I think this is a great snapshot of the American church as it's complicit in where we are today. And this wasn't because there was some cultural blindness. Listen, kidnapping, rape, deeming men and women as three-fifths a person while you have abolitionists and prophets preaching against it doesn't constitute as cultural blindness. It constitutes a spiritual blindness. And blacks in America have often been taken advantage for financial gain and then left to experience redlining, ghettoization, convict leasing, Jim Crow, voting suppression. And most of it out of the myth of inferiority and irrational fear. And from my perspective, the brokenness didn't stop in the 70s and 80s, but it's still evident today. And my hope as your pastor is to help you to think through this 
along with the rest of the pastors as the serious progressive. Today, we want to build a framework for you to hold it. Now, hear me when I say this. The state of the black community does not only stem for racism. Each ethnicity has its own set of sins and issues. It is true that there are black people that have self-inflicted wounds, and we as black people need to own up to that. I'm not saying that racism is under every rock, but racism is under some rocks. And furthermore, I'm not saying that the person of color who makes irresponsible decisions and take no responsibility for their choices can blame racism on that. No, there is personal responsibility. And for some of my black brothers and sisters in Christ, I think what God is inviting you into this series is to make sure you have a biblical perspective of both personal responsibility and structural sin. Right? If you go to uh, Wendy's, and you get a burger, and the burger doesn't come out right because they don't listen to you, and you throw a fit and blame it on racism, and then start talking about how, see, I asked for no mayo, and they put mayo on it, and that's just representation of the black, the white man trying to keep the black man down, and then they put the bun on it, and they rep, no, 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 brother, they just made a mistake. I hear you. Calm down. If you are walking around looking for racism in everything, guess what? You're going to find, find it, and sometimes you're going, to, you're going to make it up. The point of this series is to help us collectively as a church to see our brokenness and that the church must lead the way to reconciliation. While the church has fumbled many opportunities, I believe the Lord sojourn has used the church before to, to prick the moral consciousness of society and to show a better way. And I'm praying that in the midst of our city's turmoil and upheaval, that we will look to the better way, which brings us to the third word, which is Jesus. Jesus is the better way. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The author writes, I will put hostility between you and the woman God is saying. To the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In Genesis chapter 3 15, the original audience would have read this and they would have had some questions. As Temper Longman said, they would have asked, Who are the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring? What is meant by the crushing of the serpent's head and the piercing of the woman's heel? But as the Bible unfolds, things become clearer as humans are split into two groups the godly and the ungodly. And we see this as clearly as Genesis chapter 4 through 11 in the genealogies that include Cain and Seth, one notably evil and the other following God. And this theme continues throughout the Old Testament, though many times the lines between God's people and the world are blurred. Then in the New Testament, the climax is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The one who is fully God and fully human, the seed that will stump the devil's head while only bruising his heel. And what Jesus would come to do was first foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, where we read, The Lord God made clothing from, from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. God promised Adam and Eve that their sin would lead to death, and it did. 
And as long, along with the curses that God sentences in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first act of justice. And what is justice? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Justice is, as most basic core, rendering to every person their rights as image bearers of God. And it's God's image bearers who sinned against him. Justice for Adam and Eve was spiritually and physical death. But God had mercy on them and he killed an animal instead. For where sin is found, a sacrifice must be given. For that's how grave sin is to a morally perfect God. And the sacrifice points us to Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the Lamb of God who came into the world to be slain for our sins. Just as God covered Adam and Eve in the garden, friends, he covers you when you place your trust in Jesus. The issue of racism and ethnocentrism will not be solved in our heart by worldly measures. It won't be solved by any government. It won't be solved by the political left's ideology or the political right's ideology if that ideology and that person is not biblically centered and gospel focused. Our only answer and the reason we must talk about this as a church is Jesus. And the Bible teaches that those who look to Jesus They are forgiven of their sins. They are declared right by God. But they also have a heart filled with his love as the Holy Spirit pours his love into our hearts. Romans 5 and 5. And we receive a new set of eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 16. As Paul writes, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through the cross and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead to you. On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did you see that? All those who are born again, regenerated, given a new heart, are also given a new set of eyes. And we no longer see people from a worldly perspective, race. We see them in all of their dignity as image bearers of God, ethnicity. And I'm not talking about colorblindness. The Bible doesn't talk about color blindness. We are color blessed. Ethnicity is a gift. He has given us all different shades of brown and it points to his creativity and his love for humanity. Jesus has given us a ministry of reconciliation church. We are his ambassadors. And this work has been secured by Christ's cross work. Y'all didn't know Christ was cross fit. In Ephesians chapter two, we read, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down a dividing wall of hostility so that he might make for himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this 
so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put to death, hostility to death. So where the fall brought brokenness and hostility between us and God vertically and also horizontally between human and human, the cross through Jesus Christ brings reconciliation just as he did with Jew and Gentile. So does he does with other Gentiles who have different ethnicities along with our Jewish brothers and sisters. He has created one new man. The answer for our hostility with God and between each other is Jesus. Listen, racism is bad. In fact, racism is a bigger problem than you know. But the gospel is good. And it is a bigger and more beautiful gospel than any of us can comprehend. The gospel doesn't just give us hope vertically. It gives us hope horizontally. And the Bible calls us to walk worthy of the gospel. The Bible never tells us to just preach the gospel. But the Bible does call us to preach and live the gospel. The Bible does call us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Jesus is the gospel and he both preached the gospel and he demonstrated the gospel with his life. Think about Jesus. Think about, think about Jesus. And think about John chapter 4 and how he was traveling with his disciples to the road to, to Galilee. And historically, how uh, his disciples, being Jewish, would have went the long way around because there was ethnic strife between the Samaritans. And the Bible says that Jesus took his disciples to Samaria where he had a divine appointment. You probably know the story with a Samaritan woman. But I love what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus went through Samaria. And not only did he go through Samaria to, to, to deal with that woman, but, but sometimes we read our Bibles too quickly. The Bible says after he brought freedom and liberty to that woman, he spent some time with the people of Samaria and he spent two days there. Jesus was showing his disciples that this gospel that he is preaching is not just a vertical gospel, it's a horizontal gospel, and they are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. That's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, now go into Jerusalem and Samaria and preach the gospel. Jesus went through Samaria. My question for you today, my brothers and sisters, is what's your Samaria? What is Jesus calling you to go through? All of us have a Samaria. What's the people group? What's the neighborhood? What's the the place that in your heart, when you think about it, you you have thoughts that are ungodly? To my black brothers and sisters, those who have been hurt by white brothers and sisters and who just don't get white people, God is calling you to go through Samaria. Samaria. He is calling you to see your white brothers and sisters as image bearers, to be quick to forgive, to repent when necessary, to embrace them as ones that God has created in his image and loved enough to give his son for. We cannot allow the world's council culture to be our culture. And to have prejudice in our heart is not okay. And for those who are members here at Sojourn, I want to acknowledge the the extra weight as a black brother and sister that you may have on your shoulders, especially during politically uh, 
intense time where there's a lot of dog whistling on both the left and the right. I know it's difficult. But remember what we talked about last week in Philippians chapter four, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and being sinned against never gives us the right to sin. But also to the person here, your Samaria might be immigrants. Your Samaria might be a black person because you have a characterization of black people based upon the news that you consume or the upbringing that you have. Maybe your Samaria white person is another white person who is farther along in his conversation and who just gets under your nerve because to you, that's all they talk about. Or it's to another white person who has done absolutely nothing to grow in the area of racism and ethnicity. My encouragement to you, no matter who you are, Asian, Indian, or Latino, is to make sure that you allow the gospel to do its work by looking to Jesus and both preaching the gospel and living the gospel by moving closely to people, knowing that God created them with beauty, that our sin has caused brokenness, that Jesus is our healer, And finally, that he's going to bring restoration. My time is fleeting, but I want us to quickly look at Revelation 7 and 9. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I want to point out two things. One, the good news is that in heaven, you won't be having to have these masks on. Uh, We were only clothed with white robes. Some of us were breathing like, uh, who was that, Bane from Batman. (laughs) My bad. All right. But the second thing I want to point at is that the thing that is mentioned here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, is not what class certain people are in. It's not their median height or their weight. It's not their age. It's that they are people from every nation, tribe, or tongue. Ethnicity is is good. And the thing that we see that God is emphasizing as Jesus is being worshipped as a lamb is ethnic differences, which means that in heaven, while you may not be married to your spouse, it is implied that you will still have your ethnicity which means that from the beginning, this was God's plan, and it's beautiful. Ethnicity is beautiful. Every language, every accent, every shade, every lock, every curl, every color of the eye. Before we leave, I have two really quick applications. The one is this. In light of the sermon, live the end now. Live the end now, Sojourn Community Church. God is calling us to pursue healness and wholeness, healing and wholeness. And the way that we do that is by one, committing to hearing out the series. Second, by taking the posture of a learner as we listen through the series. Third is by committing to cultivate a lifestyle that intentionally embraces people outside of our own ethnicity and class to the best of our ability, knowing that this glorifies God and this is a witness to a world who won't get it right. They don't have the tools to. 
Fourth is by committing to our vision of being a multi-everything church as long as that everything lines up with the scripture. Which means that we are committed to remaining in community with each other, other even when it's difficult and hard because God is stretching us. Second, I want you to expect spiritual warfare. This is a stronghold in our country. Satan is not going to let us just walk up in this community, in our city, and speak to a stronghold without there being repercussions. And some of the repercussions are going to be in your own heart. Some of you guys are about to go through super spiritual warfare as you are going to hear some, some demonic things probably coming through in, the, in, in your own voice. And you're going to be fighting through your upbringing. You're going to be fighting through political agendas. And you're going to be wondering uh, things and assuming things that have not been said. And so I want to encourage you to listen to the rest of the series, to take every thought captive and to understand we are in a spiritual war. Sojourn, it's time to count the costs. This is us laying the groundwork for the rest of the series. There are going to be some hard conversations and hard things done with the biblical, with, with us being biblically faithful and gospel centered. And I'm not, we're not going to just coddle you. I'm not going to respond to every email and I'm not going to explain every sentence of the sermon. But we are going to go on a journey together for those of you who God has called here. And if God has not called you here, I understand. God bless you. But this world is on fire. And we will not ignore this subject. We will weigh through this subject with the Holy Spirit, with our Bibles, and together taking deep breaths, one step at a time, praying that the Lord would do a great work amidst us. My responsibility is not the rest of Louisville. My responsibility is in this church. And we're not going to allow a political uh, ultra-left agenda or ultra-right agenda to control this conversation. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.